Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Inclement weather in the air. You're working your quarterback back in after a month away. And oh, by the way, the opponent that the Seahawks are facing tomorrow, they get their quarterback back too. Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs with you here on Seattle Sports Saturday. As if tomorrow's Seahawks-Packers matchup couldn't get any bigger, we get the news this morning that Aaron Rodgers will be in the starting lineup for the Packers as he has cleared COVID protocol after missing last week's game uh, after testing positive. But Taylor, Seahawks-Packers, I mean, it almost feels like with each game the season is more and more on the line for the Seahawks. A win tomorrow would set you up very nicely going into, uh, after the Cardinals game, I would say a very cushy part of your schedule where you're facing teams like the Lions and the Bears and the Texans. It's very manageable after that. The tough part being, though, is getting to that part unscathed or maybe just a few nicks and bruises along the way. Yeah, I mean, look, you got to win some quality games in order to get into the playoffs. And this is the prove-it time for the Seahawks, not only the team, but the organization. I mean, look, they they got to prove it to a couple of these players that long-term, this is the place to be and where you want to be um, playing your football. But, yeah, I mean, look, Green Bay Seahawks, we, we know the history. We know the uh, the big moments, the, uh, the historic moments. And uh, it, it's been... It, Nothing but a uh, a storied rivalry as of late. So to add this on top of it, all the eyes of the football world, I think, will be on this game. The return of Rodgers, the return of Wilson, two of its biggest stars. And, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, quite the match to have Russell and Rodgers return to as both looking to uh, prove something in this game. Absolutely. And, and the Seahawks looking to keep pace in the NFC playoffs. We heard from a few people this week uh, actually express positivity when it comes to the Seahawks and their playoff chances, or at least in the last couple of weeks. We've heard from Matt Hasselbeck. We've heard from Mark Schlereth. Jeremy Fowler of ESPN is another person that has said, hey, look, you get Russell Wilson back, anything's possible when it comes to the playoff chances of this Seahawks team. I believe their playoff hopes still sit at just about 31%, according to ESPN. So it's not like this season is over for the Seahawks after they got off to that 2-5 and five start. They're now 3-5, and five, uh, treading water, as it were, without Russell Wilson. But now you've got him back. You don't have Chris Carson, though, for tomorrow, which is unfortunate. But that the running game... You know, you wonder how much they're going to lean on that, especially in inclement weather tomorrow. But, hey, Russell Wilson's back. One of the ultimate equalizers in this sport is having a great quarterback. He can elevate the team around him in ways that very few people in the league can. Uh, nice to have number three back in the lineup. And I think anybody that prior to the Geno Smith run that we saw over the last three weeks. Anybody who's like, oh, you could put anybody in this offense and, and the Seahawks are going to be fine. I don't think that's uh, easy to say no. anymore because Russell Wilson, uh, his absence showing his importance to this Seahawks team. But we've got plenty in store for you today here on Seattle Sports Saturday. We'll, we're with you till 1 o'clock, a full show. Uh, also, we've got Cougar football coming up later tonight here on 710 ESPN Seattle. They've got a huge matchup against the number 
three ranked Oregon Ducks. Uh, they could play spoiler not just in the college football playoff, but also in the Pac-12 North race. Also a big college football Saturday here as the Huskies continue to uh, just lick their wounds after last week. Uh, a reeling program of sorts. We'll get into all of that. But before we do, let's get into this hour's big three. Number one. Well, we mentioned it off the top. The biggest story in Seattle after missing the Seahawks' last three games due to a right middle finger injury. It looks like star quarterback Russell Wilson is going to be behind center starting for this Seattle Seahawks team as they head to Green Bay in Week 10. Pardon me. The Seahawks announced Monday morning Wilson had been cleared by Dr. Stephen Shin to play Sunday against the Packers. Shin is the doctor who performed Wilson's surgery to repair the two injuries in his finger that occurred last month. He's also joined off the IR by wide receiver D. Eskridge, who returns to the team after his week one concussion. Still no Chris Carson, however, he has been ruled out of this weekend's Green Bay matchup, even though he went through practice on Wednesday. So, what impact will Russ have in his return? What impact will not having Chris Carson while playing a cold-weather game have on this team? We're going to discuss all of those questions and more over the next two hours. Number two. Major League Baseball's GM meetings came and went this week, and Mariners President of Baseball Operations Jerry Depoto gave us all the team's wish list at various points throughout. The biggest priority, lengthening that lineup beyond just the top of the order. Last year, it was guys like Ty France, Mitch Hanniger, and, and Kyle Seeger, who is no longer a Mariner, driving in most of the runs. Well, the goal is to get that production more evened out across one through nine. The good news about that is that the Mariners have been mentioned among interested teams and in plenty of top free agent bats, including Marcus Simeon, who I think is priority number one for this Mariners team. You get Marcus Simeon, that kind of unlocks a lot of possibilities in your infield. Also, Chris Bryant, another name to watch out for. Andrew Baggerly of The Athletic, who covers the Giants, said that it's not likely Bryant returns to San Francisco, so could that be another possibility for the Mariners? Now, they might only have about three weeks here to reel in some big names before Major League Baseball and the Players Union are expected to let the CBA expire and enter into a lockout. Now, most insiders believe negotiations for a new CBA could drag out until February. With all of that uncertainty, we're going to look at how urgent the Mariners need to be later on this hour. Number three. Well, the University of Washington Huskies head football coach Jimmy Lake has been suspended by the university for one game due to a sideline altercation with a Husky player during Saturday's 26-16 loss to the Oregon Ducks. In the first half of Saturday's game, Lake's right hand appeared to hit the face mask of one of his players after he and an Oregon player had an exchange on Washington's sideline. Lake also appeared to follow the player give him a push in the back after said incident. So rumors have been fly been flying around Montlake since this happened, and it may appear that he has coached his last game on Montlake, not only this season, but potentially beyond as well. So difficult times for the Huskies, for, uh, for a program specifically that appeared to be cruising and, and appeared to be one that was pacing along with Oregon as the tops in the program now reeling looking to uh, see how things will shake out over the next few weeks with their coaching situation 
in basketball, no reprieve either for the dogs. So interesting things for UW Athletics. And uh, we'll, we'll monitor it going forward. But football-wise, uh, interesting to watch the head coach get suspended as they head into a crucial matchup with Arizona State. That is this hour's big three. Boy, yeah, that Husky Athletic program right now, if you tally up the possible buyouts for Jimmy Lake and Mike Hopkins, you're looking at about $19 million that you're going to need to drop in order to move on from both of those guys. Uh, I don't envy Jen Cohen at all right now in having to deal with the two biggest moneymakers in your athletic department being as bad as they are. Uh, or at least in football's sense here, nowhere near what it was prior to Jimmy Lake taking over from Chris Peterson. Uh, that is just a situation that needs a resolution sooner rather than later. Because I don't think the Huskies are really doing themselves any kind of favor here, drawing out Jimmy Lake's suspension for the rest of the season. Let's say that they don't. Let's say they suspend him for next week against Colorado or suspend him the week after that for the Apple Cup. Figure out a buyout or figure out something and, and just cut bait because if you're if you're going to keep him, which I don't think is the possibility at all right now, then why are you even suspending him? So I, I think if you move on sooner rather than later, it's just going to be the best for every every possible situation with the Husky Athletic Department. Yeah, and just think about the recruiting, right? Think about every day in this, you know, a lot of seasons are into the playoffs or football, you know, high school football seasons are starting to wrap up. So, look, this is when you get to see a lot of those players you're recruiting in action, you finalize a lot of those deals with some of those players. It's a big impact, and not only on this season, but going forward, right? And, and look, we, we've seen it on the other side of the state, too, with Wazoo and the lack of recruiting that they had with Rolovich, the impact won't be felt this year. It's it's years to come. So, you know, we're hoping for the best. We want to see both programs succeed here in Washington. Gives us a little bit more fun topics to talk about. But, uh, yeah, tough tough sledding right now for the uh, dogs on Montlake. Absolutely. Some honorable mentions, the Kraken, uh, they're in the midst of a three-game losing streak. They dropped two on the road to the Coyotes and Golden Knights. Both games uh, had their opportunities to put them away, and then also dropping their first game of this six-game homestand against the Anaheim Ducks on Thursday night. They get an opportunity to bounce back, though, tonight against the Minnesota Wild, a team that they beat earlier in the season 4-1 at home. Uh, Philip Grubauer will be the starting goalie tonight. Uh, that's what uh, we're seeing from uh, the media in attendance at morning skate-around. Uh, but, yeah, the Kraken will get into them coming up later on this hour as well. They're one month into their very first season. What do we like? What do we not like? We'll get into that in about 15 minutes or so. Uh, we mentioned the Cougs and Oregon game. You can catch that right here on 710 ESPN Seattle tonight. College basketball tipping off this week. The Huskies with a horrible loss in their first game, losing to Northern Illinois. They bounce back, though, in game two, get a win over Northern Arizona. Uh, now they just got 48 other northern schools they got to beat uh, to run the gauntlet against all northern schools. But uh, also big matchup tonight: Gonzaga, number one in the country, taking on number five Texas. That's tonight at 7:30 on ESPN2. That game's happening in Spokane. Those are your honorable mentions. That has been the big three. But coming up next, 
Russell Wilson's back. Aaron Rodgers is back. A tremendous quarterback matchup tomorrow. Who's got the edge in that one? We talk that next year on CF Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. Mac and Jack's text line is there for you, 206-421-3776. If you want to join in on the conversation at any point this morning or this afternoon, we're with you till 1 o'clock. That's where you can do so. Coming up in this hour, the Mariners, how active should they be before a potential lockout next month? Look, the free agent market waits for no one, so the Mariners might need to strike soon here if they want to make a splash early on in free agency. We'll talk that in about 25, 30 minutes from now. But obviously, the task at hand this weekend, Seahawks-Packers, you have to win if you're the Seahawks, and it doesn't get any easier now with Aaron Rodgers back in the fold for Green Bay. You thought that the Seahawks would have had a little bit of easier go of it with Russell Wilson at quarterback and maybe Jordan Love on the opposite sideline, but that's not going to be the case as Aaron Rodgers will play tomorrow. He is good to go. So with that being said, you look at this matchup. Russell Wilson has not played in about a month. Aaron Rodgers has not been around people in two weeks. (laughs) Like He has not had any opportunity to practice with anybody, and he is going to try and play tomorrow as though, you know, he's gotten all caught up on everything. Taylor, when you look at the two scenarios here, who do you think is going to have the tougher transition back to the field tomorrow? Is it going to be Russell Wilson, who is dealing, you know, with a a finger injury on his throwing hand? By all accounts, it looks like he is is raring to go and, and hasn't had any sort of ill effects on that throwing hand. Or is it going to be Aaron Rodgers who will have his first human contact tomorrow? Yeah, and let's not forget the 500 pages of research he was putting together for the NFL, which takes a lot of time. I don't know if, if anyone's done any sort of research on their own, um, but it's very that, difficult. Or did he just staple it? I'm assuming he stay. you know, what are those big, long brass things that sort of, they're two prongs and they split at oh, the yeah. end? I forget what they're called, but he probably the used brads? one of those. In, the Brads, thank you. Yeah. He used an extra long one of those. But to me, unfortunately, I think the answer is Aaron Rodgers. That, yes, he's been away from human contact and people and jokes aside, all of that for two weeks. But Wilson had that injury on his throwing hand on the finger that leaves the football last. And I know I'm not trying to be a doomsday guy, but... Th- it's a real injury. I mean, he had pins in it. He had them pulled out. We know Pete Carroll's talked about how he's looked so impressive in practice, and I don't doubt that. But still, again, a month away from the game, coming back in the cold, which, again, if I don't know if you've had a surgery of any kind out there, but your your wounds hurt in the cold like that after you have a major surgery. So what's he going to feel like? What's the ball going to feel like in his hand out there? I know he'll be as prepared as possible. But to me, I think if the question is comparing the two, I think Aaron Rodgers is better fit to get reacclimated to his team tomorrow and um, return to his normal self. What do you think, Curtis? Do you think Rodgers has the edge there? 
I look at Rodgers in his scenario is he'll be in a familiar territory. He's playing at his home stadium. He's around his teammates. There is going to be very little different about his game day routine than it was two weeks ago when he last played. Whereas Russell Wilson, I'm I'm sure there might be a little extra TLC on that finger tomorrow. Um, who knows if maybe he gets it dinged up a little bit, got to throw on a glove on that throwing hand. I know, uh, that has not been part of his practice regimen this week is throwing with a glove on uh, or any kind of splint on that finger. Who knows how that's going to be come game time. I, I, I agree with you. I think Aaron Rodgers will have an easier time reacclimating uh, simply because it, it's a home game for him. The crowd's going to be on his side. Uh, he's got pretty much all of his weaponry ready to go. Devontae Adams is back in the lineup, his favorite target. Uh, you know, they've got, everything going for them right now, Aaron Jones in the backfield. Uh, and also, I mean, this isn't going to be, you know, a welcome thing to hear from Seahawks fans, but I think the Packers have the better roster of the two teams. I think they have a deeper team right now, and, and that is going to help out in a big way tomorrow. But I think Russell Wilson can never be counted out in any sort of situation, even if he's coming back from – a very important injury on his throwing hand uh, in a month away. I think this Seahawks team is just infinitely better with him at quarterback. I think Tyler and DK are going to be looking for uh, a lot of targets tomorrow. And then also on the Seahawks offense, they get D Eskridge back, which we've never really seen Eskridge at full health this season. And he's played what just a couple of games in the regular season what can he add to this offense? And and really, I mean, what can he add that makes the Seahawks confident in him and confident that they made the right decision in passing on Odell Beckham Jr.? Because, look, I mean, you look at the two, obviously Beckham is what he is, but they would not have made those decisions if they didn't have a belief in D. Eskridge and what he can be. Second-round pick, I think it's time for him to start, uh, start showing why the Seahawks made such a significant investment in him. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to come in a traditional wide receiver sense like you you see, the big yardage. I think it's going to come from, you know, some screens, some bubble passes, some short intermediate routes for him to get the ball quickly and sort of go out there, use some of that speed, use some of it, that youth that he has, and take advantage of some of these matchups. It's going to be difficult. We haven't seen too much of it, so we don't know how much he can do, but that's where they're going to have to get D. Eskridge involved. Unique plays. Shane Waldron's got to drop some cool stuff, you know, some, some fly sweeps, get him the ball on a handoff in the backfield. Things like that will help keep Green Bay honest, right? And And keep them at least respecting those plays to make sure that they don't pop for the big stuff. And that's where you hit Tyler for 25. That's where you hit DK for a 40 yard catch. That's how you catch green Bay who does again, have a really good defense. I think people are, are talking about Aaron Rodgers a whole lot, but green Bay's defense has also been an impressive unit this, this season for them. So to me, you got to involve D in that unique 
way to really catch Green Bay off guard. Or else it's going to be a long day of, I think, Aaron Rodgers picking apart this defense five-yard pass, ten-yard pass. He loves to do that. Oh, no. And the Seahawks love to give it up, right? Because they don't want to give up the big play behind them, especially against Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers, maybe one of the best long ball throwers ever. You're going to see a lot of those five- to ten-yard passes on Sunday. So what can they do to bend, don't break, and have the offense help them on the other side? Oh, Taylor, you bring up the, the dink and dunks, the, the five-yard passes over the middle, and I've already broken out into a cold sweat. I, I just, yeah, I hate I'm sorry. To, I hate to think of that as even a possibility tomorrow, but we know that's how the Packers are going to try and get their yardage against this Seahawks team. And uh, you mentioned Rodgers' ability to throw the deep ball. I mean, yeah, that that is such a weapon that they have. Uh, Devontae Adams being healthy again, that is something that terrifies me as well, especially looking at this Seahawks defense that outside of Quandre Diggs has not forced an interception this season. Diggs has three. Those are the only interceptions Seattle has had this season. You're going up against one of the most accurate quarterbacks of all time. I believe Aaron Rodgers may be the most accurate quarterback of all time if we're looking at quarterback rating, completion percentage, uh, touchdown-to-interception ratio. I'm pretty sure Rodgers is is right up there near the very, very top of that list, Uh, which, look, that doesn't bode well for the Seahawks, but what does bode well for them is that Green Bay run defense, not very good, so maybe there is going to be opportunities for Alex Collins, for Travis Homer, for DJ Dallas to get get unlocked. I I don't know. What's interesting to me is that DJ Dallas had such a great preseason and yet they have they haven't really used him in the run game a ton and i mean he's been used in in the return game but looking at what he did in the preseason you'd think there might be a little more opportunity to get him some carries especially with Chris Carson out again this week dealing with that neck injury how do you think Seattle should balance that rushing attack in Chris Carson's absence for another week here is Alex Collins to you the guy for this job right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, until Chris Carson gets back, Collins has has proven he can be that workhorse. You sprinkle in Penny, you sprinkle in the D Eskridge weird, you know, little plays like we were mentioning, but especially in Green Bay, it's cold. It's gonna be physical. So having a runner who can be just as physical, take those hits continue to run, continue to to move his legs, it's going to be so valuable. Can he score against Green Bay? I mean, we're we're going to have to see. It's going to be a a tough matchup, but to me it's it's Collins all the way. I know Penny is flashier, has maybe a higher ceiling. I know a lot of people would debate me on that, but I think the people inside that organization believe Penny has the ceiling that is higher. Um, but Collins has go, gone out there and shown you, you know, that he can do it and that when Carson's gone, he can fill in and provide some of the the carries this offense needs. But, Curtis, it's going to be so important to controlling the clock, keeping Rodgers on the sideline, keeping your defense fresh to go against Rodgers and those dink and dunks and, and, and staying patient. So much of this game is going to rely on this run game and where it takes them. So to me... Alex Collins is is a trustworthy guy. I trust him to take those carries. Now can they go out there and convert and and, and keep that clock running? We're going to find out in uh, about, you know, 26 hours or so. 
about that. T- Taylor, I like that you bring up Rashad Penny because I completely spaced on him, and I think that's due yeah. in large part to <laughs> the production that he's had <laughs> this season because it's like, oh, yeah, he's he's still on this roster. Weird. Uh, he is. His, yeah, he's uh, got seven rushing yards, eight rushing yards, and nine rushing yards in his three games back. Uh, right. So maybe he reaches double digits on Sunday. That would be uh, that'd be a, a nice uh, progress from him. I think that's not asking I'll take it. the world of him. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'll take I it. I would gladly take, take double digits. Uh, coming up, like we said in this hour, we're going to talk about the Mariners. How active should they be before that potential lockout deadline? Uh, of the first week of December, but up next, the Kraken. First month in the books, a lot to lot that could be worked on, but hey, there's also some good in there as well. We'll get into that next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. A month into the books, a month getting to know the newest franchise here in Seattle sports. That'd be your Seattle Kraken, 4-9-1. and one. Their record leaves plenty to be desired, obviously, but they're an expansion team. And I, I think that there is a lot of, I guess, frustration in their record because of how good Vegas was out of the gate. And I don't think that's very fair to the Kraken to leap or to heap those expectations onto them after Vegas they they sort of wrote the rule book on how to be an expansion franchise and the rest of the league caught on to it and made it a lot harder on the Kraken to acquire talent the way Vegas did but there is still things that I think are are fair to critique with this Kraken team after their 4-9 and 1 start there are also things that are exciting to watch about this team, even though the, the wins have not been as abundant as I think a lot of experts in the NHL had had sort of projected it to be. Taylor, the 4-9-1 start is what it is, but looking at this team right now, what do you think is the biggest area of concern, in your opinion, just based off of what you've seen so far? The, the defense and how many goals appear to be coming from the defensive side or the lack of defensive pressure, effort, I, I don't know what to call it. I, I don't want to say effort, but, you know, it, it, it feels like that from a fan's, from an analyst's perspective, right? You look, 3.64 goals per game allowed, 31st in the league, coupled with... The power play, which has just been an absolute nightmare for for some reason, 9.3% conversion rate, lowest, 32nd in the NHL. So to me, you got to start with those two numbers. You can't be dead last and second to last in in any of those two big team stats or else uh, it's an uphill battle because... You know, penalty kill, not great, but still sort of middle of the road. 2.8 goals per game, that's actually pretty decent. Um, could be a little bit more, but again, for, for an expansion team that's barely played together, you, you sort of like that goal production. But for me, yeah, Curtis, I'm starting with the, the goals against and the power play. Two biggest issues for this Kraken um, franchise. Absolutely. And I mean, that was the calling card of this team following the expansion draft was that they were going to be 
solid defensively. You didn't have to worry about them. They had stacked up on a lot of good defensive uh, on a lot of good defensemen, and then they also signed Adam Larson in free agency, who had played a lot of big games in his career uh, with the Edmonton Oilers, with the uh, New Jersey Devils in his career. He comes over here, signs that contract. It's like you add him to Mark Giordano, who has actually been pretty good this season, uh, according to a lot of advanced metrics around the NHL, um, just in his role as that first-line blue liner there. Um, but, man, this team allows a lot of goals, and I don't think anybody saw that coming. Uh, and, look, the last line of your defense is your goaltending, and – we thought, and I think ESPN, they had their preseason goal goalie tandem rankings. They had the Kraken third overall in the league just the very first year with Philip Grubauer and Chris Drieger. Now, Chris Drieger, had, he's been hurt most of the season. He finally got his first start against Vegas this week uh, in a game where the Kraken had that 2-1 lead right before the end of the second period where they allowed that late goal and then two quick goals to start the third period. That was the end of that. Um, so maybe Chris Drieger, when healthy, can add to that goaltending, uh, those goaltending numbers. But Philip Grubauer, I think, has to be a little bit better because this was a guy who was a Vezina Trophy finalist a year ago with Colorado, signs that big deal to come over here to Seattle. And, I mean, you look at his performance against Anaheim the other night. They Now, a couple of those goals were empty netters, which aren't his fault at all. But of the five goals that he did allow in that game, boy, I, I mean, I'm just, you know, a casual observer here. A few of those looked like very savable shots. Yeah, I, I, I think most fans, novice to advanced, would agree with you there, Curtis, that you just looked at the goals and you felt like he was missing it. He was not seeing the puck, something along those lines that, that prevented him from getting to the right position because it happened again and again, specifically in that game against the ducks. But yeah, you got a, you got an important stretch of games coming up here, Minnesota, who you beat four one. You got to get that win tonight on home ice. Cause then you head into Chicago, Colorado, Washington, Carolina, Tampa Bay which is a tough stretch and you need a couple, you, you need some points to, to be frank. You, you got to get some points from some of those games and it's tough sledding. Those are some good teams and they got some good talented players all throughout their lines. So, uh, and then it doesn't get easier. You know what I mean? Edmonton, Pittsburgh, Winnipeg, it, some of those big teams who are really competitive right now, scoring a ton of goals. It looks scary. So, the 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 in net issues with Gruby and Drieger when he gets more comfortable and a couple more games under his belt, it's got to start there, and then you can work out to the power play, right? Then you can worry about your formations, how often you're scoring, who's scoring, who you're setting up to score. You got to stop them from scoring before you can worry about you scoring as well. I think another aspect that has not gone Seattle's way early on in the season in really I think has taken the NHL world by surprise is how good the Pacific division has been. You look up and down the standings, only two teams in that division have a losing record right now of the eight teams that are there. It's Vancouver and it's Seattle. Everybody else has a winning record. We've seen Edmonton in person. They look 
uh, awesome with Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Uh, I think they are going to be right up near the top of the Pacific Division standings. We saw Anaheim for the first time this week. Troy Terry, who has been <laughs> incredible this season, he's got a, what, like a 13-game point streak here. He's been awesome. We have not seen Calgary or L.A. yet in person. We've seen Vegas twice already. They seem to have the Kraken's number right now, but, I mean, the Pacific Division was considered to be the weakest in the NHL heading into this season, which I think a lot of people had said was going to work in Seattle's favor, especially people who thought that the Kraken could make the playoffs in year one. And that, and who's to say that they still can? I mean, they, they, they're still, what, they played 14 games this season. There's 68 games remaining here. Uh, that's a long, long time left in this season. And as we've seen in the NHL, you can get hot at the right time and really make your way into the playoffs. What was it? The uh, St. Louis Blues a couple of years ago. They had the worst record yep. in the league at at the uh, at New Year's Day. Break. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they go on and win the Stanley Cup that year. So things can turn on a dime really quickly in the NHL here. Hopefully that can happen for the Kraken. But this Pacific Division starting to look like maybe a little tougher than we had kind of anticipated. Yeah, and, and just the West in general, I think, is actually pretty decent. I know there's a lot of talent on the in the Eastern Conference, and you know there's teams who are surprising on on both sides. The Florida Panthers, good example, we already got ten wins on the season, so I think it's been a pleasant surprise to analysts to see the sort of um, I don't want to call it parity, but just the the spreading of wins throughout the organizations here and. Yeah, you look up and down the Pacific and even the whole Western Conference, and it, it, it doesn't get easy for the Kraken, but not impossible. you got to start winning some of these games, getting the points, getting those goals, stopping some goals. Pardon me, first, let's stop, let's start there. Um, and then, you know, you, you beat some of the Chicagos and the Colorados. You get back at Vancouver at some point. Then you're, you know, you start to be in the mix of the middle of the the uh, the conference there, and that's when you go on the run. That's how you get into the playoffs, and so much on the table for this Kraken team. Again, fourteen games together. Most teams playing hockey need that f- a year, half year, you know, season. Pardon me, um, to, to get comfortable with each other. And, and this team is really growing and learning as they go quickly, but they're going to need to figure some things out a little bit quicker in order to uh, not fall too far behind in the standings. Now we're a month in who has been, or what has been the most positive thing you have seen from this team so far? I mean, the Eberly run was, is crazy. You know, his goal scoring abilities. I think the, everyone will agree it's been Tenev and, and turbo has brought this sort of energy he re- it resonates in Seattle. I, you know, I have season tickets, so when I go, I, I listen to the fans. And, and he is the most common name being called other than Gru and, the, you know, Big Save. But you hear them chanting for Turbo. You hear them getting out of their seats when he's got the puck and making a run. Uh, he's been just overall such an exciting player to see on this team. But, uh, you know, Eberly and Wenberg are probably the two the analysts would say. But I think the fans are all almost unanimously would say that Tenev has been the guy who's been the most exciting to watch. What do you think, Curtis? Who's who's jumped he, out to you? Yeah, Brandon Tanev, I mean, when he is on the ice or just when he gets introduced at each game, you can hear 
the energy in the building pick up. And that's the kind of player he is. He is a guy that is going to give you max effort each and every shift he's out there. And Jordan Eberle, I mean, he got off to the slow start. Everybody's kind of like, where, where are the goals going to come from here? He was sort of pegged as a guy that could put the puck in. Well, he's done that over the last week or so. Seven goals in his last seven games. Uh, I don't anticipate him slowing down, really, uh, at, at any point soon. I mean, he is sort of adapted to that role as like I'm the guy that's going to put the puck in the net for this team someone's got to do it why not be me uh I think those two guys have really been uh you know just incredible additions to this team and you mentioned Alex Wenberg leading the team in assists with eight uh the goals haven't necessarily been there for him but he's finding ways to get involved and, and to set other guys up that's just as important as, as getting the puck in the net as putting your teammates in great positions to do so. I, I think those three guys, and then when Jared, when Jared McCann is in the lineup, uh, he's been very productive as well. Uh, coming up in this hour, we still got some Mariner talk to get to. How active should they be over the next couple weeks? And also, we'll get you a scoreboard of the early action in college football. We'll talk some more Seahawks Packers in the 12 o'clock hour. Lots in store for you right here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. The Mariners have the most important offseason quite a while right in the year right now. And, uh, you know, there is obviously some urgency to get something done here just based off of the importance of, of next season, where they are as a franchise but also something that I, I don't know if a lot of fans are considering is the fact that we are looking a lockout squarely in the eye here in a few weeks. Uh, I believe it's December 2nd. December 3rd is when the CBA will expire, which means we are, what, three weeks away, four weeks away from that being a very real possibility. And by all accounts, it looks as though that will happen barring some last-minute changes here uh, in negotiations. When that happens, there will be a freeze on activity in baseball. No one will sign, no trades will be made, no nothing will happen for an indefinite amount of time. In an offseason where the Mariners need to make as many trades and as many signings as, as possible to get them to where they need to be, that's not ideal, Taylor. That's not something that you want to hear as a Mariners fan, which I think amplifies the next couple of weeks here because if you want to put yourself out in front, if you want to make sure that your presence is known in the hot stove here, let's let's get going. Let's make some moves here. Let's start to uh, unfreeze this hot stove and and you know get some guys in this in this Mariner uniform, in this Mariner clubhouse, because boy, if you get to that lockout and your roster kind of looks like what it looks like today, I don't think that's going to be putting a lot of Mariners fans at ease. No, not at all. And you look at some of the names available right now too, right? That to be inactive in a time when there is a bounty of, of players at different positions that would help fill certain needs for, for this Mariners organization to be inactive would be uh, extremely detrimental. I mean, extremely, this is like you said, Curtis, at the start, there was no jest there. I think most people understand this might be the most important off season for the Mariners 
20 years, 20 plus years, maybe ever. I, I, I'm, I'm willing to hear ever. I wasn't around at some of the start of those seasons, but, uh, you know, Fred and Birch Bay, if you want to weigh in on the text line, let us know if this, it, from your perspective, being, being here the whole time, is this the most important off season? To me, it feels like yes, because again, with all these players available, with all the needs you have, with all the success you just had with the players you have, you have to make something happen here. The only thing that worries me, Curtis, with this lockout looming in a couple of weeks, does it make sense? And I'll ask you this. Does it make sense to sign one of those Albert Pujols 10-year mega monster deals with one of these players you know, if you were able to get a Simeon or not, I mean, Simeon's he's 31, so maybe not 10 years, but if you were to get a, a big name player, are you comfortable giving a big type contract like that before the CBA might put some rules into place or, or the, 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 the league might change? The only two guys I think I would be comfortable giving a contract of that length to would be Carlos Correa and Corey Seager. And I don't, know if the Mariners have much of a shot at either one of them. I think Carlos Correa would probably be more likely to sign here based off of the obvious history with the Seager family and the Mariners, uh, especially what has played out in the Seattle Times over the last couple of weeks. Uh, But that is a good point because who knows what the next CBA could mean for those massive contracts. Maybe they put limits on contract length the way we've seen in the NBA where guys can only sign four year or five year deals, which sort of, you know, it, it, the owners like that because you're not hamstrung in years six through 10 or six through 13, 14, whatever, uh, where, you know, you're paying somebody in their 40s, you know, $35, $40 million. Uh, But the Players Association, I would imagine, does not want to concede on that kind of point. But if I'm the Mariners, I think they saw firsthand what it's like to have somebody in your organization on a 10-year deal when they signed Robinson Cano and how the last couple of years he was here, they did everything in their power to get out of that contract. And they, they... successfully did and also got one of the best you know young prospects in the game back in Jared Kelnick the unfortunate thing is you also had to give up one of your best young players too in Edwin Diaz but actually Diaz you know in the last couple of years has not exactly he has not been the Edwin Diaz here in Seattle he's still a good relief pitcher but as we know relief pitchers are so volatile that projecting success for those guys year to year is so so tough but i look at the mariners right now i don't necessarily think they're going to go and and try and spend in sort of that fashion where you lock a guy down for a decade i think marcus Semyon, if you can get him on a four or five year deal where you're not paying him past age 35 age 36 i think that's something that the mariners could probably be comfortable with especially if they're paying him you know 25 to 30 million dollars a season uh where you know look their payroll is not big already you add a 25 to 30 million dollar salary on your books your payroll's still not going to be that much i believe they only have like 20 something million tied up on the books for next season so even if you do spend a big amount on one guy 
there is still plenty of cash to go around for the rest of your offseason. Yeah, and looking at some of these starting pitchers, to me, if you could find a way to maybe sign, uh, you know, one of the veterans, the Scherzers, you know, the the Verlanders, the Kershaws, one of the people a little bit older, that plus 33 in age, still got some gas left in the tank, though. Can you maybe get one of those guys signed before this CBA lockout, before the, the things really get put on pause? To maybe send a message to those players as they're sitting there at home waiting for things to happen. And they're looking around and saying, okay, when things unfreeze, you know, where are we going? What, what, what teams are we going to try and sign with and attack? And maybe that sends a message to the rest of the league that, hey, the Mariners are actual buyers, contenders. This is a place you want to go sign. So to me, if you could get one of those veteran pitchers, starting pitchers, on the cheaper you know, short-term deal would love to get that done in the next couple of weeks to send that message out. And maybe it's a trade. Maybe there's a player out there they could trade for. It's going to be a little bit more difficult, um, obviously to make a trade than to sign a player. But <clears throat> to me, if they can get that move done specifically, I think it sends a message to the Chris Bryants, to the Semians that maybe Seattle is the place I should be thinking about going. Maybe they are, a place that will be contending for the next few years and for years beyond that. 100% agree with you right there. I think making a big time move, you know, if we're going to use a chess metaphor, moving your queen out, that's like, Whoa, Hey, Whoa, what are you doing there, man? If the Mariners can make a big time splash, whether it be in free agency or via trade, maybe you trade for Jose Ramirez or, or you trade for Brian Reynolds of the Pittsburgh pirates in the outfield there. Maybe there, maybe that kind of move sends a message to these guys who maybe don't have Seattle in their top one or two in terms of free agent destinations, but maybe that would move the Mariners up in a way. I mean, if you go out and get Jose Ramirez, who has been an MVP candidate for the better part of the last four or five seasons, and who is still on the good side of 30 years old, I believe he'll be 29 this season, I mean, that's got to be enticing to a guy like Marcus Semien. All of a sudden, your infield could be Jose Ramirez at third, J.P. Crawford at short, Marcus Semien at second, Ty France at first base. That is uh, that that becomes maybe one of the best infields in baseball, maybe the best infield in baseball at that point. Um, who's to say that could that it could actually happen? But you know, who can say you know who can make that happen is Jerry Depoto if he gets on the phone here. And and I would imagine he has checked in on that. That doesn't seem too crazy, too outlandish. Uh, as we know, DePoto loves to make trades. And making a trade or, or making a signing here over the next couple of weeks, I think, is going to be of the utmost importance because you can't sit back anymore. You won 90 games a year ago, and we're a, game, we're a day away from, you know, forcing a game 163. Going from... 70 plus wins to 90 wins that's pretty easy going from 90 wins to 95 to 100 wins that's incredibly difficult and that's where the great teams separate themselves from the good teams the mariners need to be in that great stratosphere if they want to become those perennial contenders that jerry depoto has uh sort of made the goal of 
rebuild here. Coming up in the next hour, we'll get you a scoreboard of the early action in college football. Also, we'll get you a big three, including a big injury to a key member of the L.A. Rams suffered yesterday. The news coming out this morning, we'll get into all of that coming up next here on Seattle Sports Saturday.